Last week we looked, we're in John chapter 18, if you will please turn there with me, John, John 18. Last week we looked at the beginning of the interrogation of Jesus in his trial before Annas and Caiaphas. Remember there were, he's three, there were six, the series of six trials that our Lord went through as part of his passion. And there were those first three religious or Jewish trials, Annas and Caiaphas, and then there are three government or Roman trials, and, and this morning we're, we're turning to the beginning of that series of three Roman trials. And so it's early Friday morning, Jesus has been dragged from the Sanhedrin where the Jewish council met with Caiaphas, and he's been dragged now to Pontius Pilate's compound. And that's where we pick it up in John chapter 18, let's start reading in verse 28. We'll read through verse 38. John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. We recited together the Apostles' Creed a moment ago, and as Patrick mentioned, we have this reference and tucked right into the middle of this creed. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. This this one of the the greatest summaries of of Christian truth. There in this greatest summary of Christian truth, there's this specific reference to Pontius Pilate, and that and the inclusion of that little phrase has raised major questions by many people throughout centuries. That and, and you think about it, it is kind of interesting. Think of think about this for a moment. And at one level, by inserting this little little note 
Pilate about Pontius Pilate, this creed is demonstrating that a crucial, that this crucial part in the life and work of Jesus Christ is, it's historical. It's not fiction. It's not legend that was made up by the early church fathers. It wasn't that. It's, it's real. So it roots this confession in time and space and history. These events really took place. This was an event that was public. It was official. There were records that were kept of this event. There were hundreds of witnesses of this event. So this was a real event that actually happened. And I think that's part of it. And so all of that is vital to the gospel because the gospel isn't simply about what God has said, but it's about what God has done. And so it, so it, it, it anchors uh, the gospel to Again, to real events, real people, real places. But, but you, you, even that said, you think of all of the people who surrounded the life of Jesus during his ministry on earth. You think of John the Baptist and the disciples and Lazarus and these, these key players. And yet, it's Pontius Pilate whose name is mentioned every single time the church recites the Apostles' Creed. It's interesting. Some have found this reference throughout church history to be Kind of offensive that his this pagan Roman governor's name ended up in this creed. Others have just wondered why, why, why him? Even in reference to Jesus' sufferings, why, why not Annas? Why not Caiaphas? Why not Herod? Why Pilate? Why well, I think it's because and most would agree that that Pilate becomes the the public face of Christ's unjust suffering. He, he's the one who's most visibly on the seat of judgment when, when all of this goes down at this most important part in God's drama of redemption. He's, he's kind of the figurehead. And so it's significant that this, this point person, when he renders judgment, when he, after all of his interrogation of Jesus, his judgment is finally this, what we just read a moment ago. I find no fault. No guilt in him. And so, so that's, I think that's part of it too, why this is here. But, but beyond that, why Pilate's name is mentioned in the Apostles' Creed, that's not my major question that I've been stumbled by all this week. But here's the question that I've been wrestling with all week. It's, it, if, if not guilty is the Roman governor's verdict, if from his viewpoint Jesus is perfectly innocent... Why in the world does he end up turning Jesus over to this Jewish mob and sentencing him to death? Why, why does he do this? Now before we dive into the text itself and work through this passage, I, I want to take a few minutes and give kind of a bite-sized uh, overview, summary of the life in the career of Pontius Pilate because I think it's going to help us answer that question. And understand what's going on in this passage. With, with the exception of, only, of one other passage, which is in Luke 13. This, the, the only time Pilate is mentioned is in reference to these, this trial of Jesus. Now in Luke 13, we read that Pilate had some, had some Jews violently and viciously murdered. When they were at the altar offering sacrifices to the Lord. And, 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 and so we have that reference. And so that, again, as we'll talk about his life, we'll see how that could fit. But apart from kind of the scant references we have in Scripture, again, outside of these trial scenes, there are many references in other ancient literature to Pontius Pilate. And so we can, you can look to them and kind of find out more of what, this, what, 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 this, what makes this man. 
Pilate. And again, it's going to help us understand the context and what's going on here and why these, 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 this uh, concession is so easily made to the Jews. So there are, there are many who wrote it, and they were contemporaries of Pilate, eyewitnesses to his life and to his rule. And most notably, we have the Jewish theologian Josephus. You might have heard his name. And, and so he, has, he wrote a lot. He was a historian, and he give, gives all kinds of records for understanding what was going on in the early part of 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 um, of the first millennia, and so so we have he he gives us a great picture of Pilate's personality, his reign, the character of that, and so we know that Pilate was appointed as governor over Palestine in the year A.D. 26 by the Emperor Tiberius. At that time, this was the least desirable outpost in the Roman Empire. You, if you, this was not the plum assignment to be ruling over the Jews in Israel. This was, this was not considered that because the Jews were known for anything but being compliant with Roman rule. And, and so it was a difficult position. And he seemed to kind of carry this chip on his shoulder throughout his reign as governor. His hostility toward the Jewish people became, became evident right away in his rule. And again, so we have passages like that in Luke 13. He was appointed in 26 AD. He reigned till 27 or 37 AD. Now there are a few notable events in Pilate's reign and his involvement with the Jews that, again, really help us understand what's going on in this context and help kind of answer that question I, I put forth a moment ago. They they help us get a sense of the mood and kind of the climate of the relations between Pilate and the Roman authorities and the Jewish people in Jerusalem. So. Four events. First one is this, is when he first came to power, when he was the first appointed as governor, one of the first decisions he made was to set up these Roman standards all over the city that bore the image of the emperor. And, and so he thought, I'm sure this would curry some favor with the emperor and show his support and loyalty to the emperor, and maybe it did, but this was horribly offensive to the Jews. To have this image of the divine emperor plastered, plastered all over the city. And so the whole city is stirred up into this outrage and, 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 and at this move by Pilate. Josephus tells us that, that the Jewish people in Jerusalem, the residents in Jerusalem, they went on a sit-down strike. And so they surrounded Pilate's headquarters in Jerusalem there. And they, and they just sat down and didn't move for five days. Just sat. And so Pilate eventually came with his troops and he told them to draw their swords and he threatened them, if you don't get up and if you don't go home, we're going to cut your heads off. Well, with that, the Jewish protesters laid down on the ground and they stuck their necks out, prepared to die. And so Pilate, he relented. He backed off and standards were removed from the city. But don't you know... He was frustrated. He was furious with them. And, and, and he felt pushed around by these Jewish people. A second event that carries some significance. that Later, Pilate built an aqueduct to carry fresh water into the city of Jerusalem from the cisterns that were up in Bethlehem. And so he, he built this aqueduct. And you think, wow, this is a great PR move. Fresh water for the city. This, will, this can't go wrong. And so everybody celebrated him, right? No, they rioted. Why? Because he stole money from the temple to build it. 
And so, so again, the Roman troops had to be called in to bring order as there was this major unrest and to, to, and to squelch this riot that ensued after he did this. And so this time he told them not to draw their swords. Instead, he sent them in with clubs and, and beat the Jewish people. And many of them were killed in the process. A third event. Pilate didn't give up easily. Later he brought and he set up these golden uh, kind of decorative shields and set them up all around his headquarters in Jerusalem. And this time they didn't bear the image of the emperor, but they, 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 had, printed, they had put on them this, this, this um, inscription of dedication to Tiberius. So words written on the shield. Again, the people of Jerusalem, they were up in arms again. They, they were, they were not, not too pleased with this move on the part of Pilate. And this time, though, Pilate dug in. He refused to back down. He's not going to be pushed around again by these inhabitants of Jerusalem. He wouldn't give in to their demands and have them removed. But in a strange alliance, Herod Herod comes to the aid of the Jewish people and lends his support to the Jews. And he sent four of his sons to the emperor to appeal on behalf of the Jews... And, and let them let the emperor know how offensive this was, and that there was all of this unrest, and Pilate had lost control. So, so the emperor himself had to order, end up ended up ordering Pilate to have all of those shields removed, and from the city, he tells him just move them to Caesarea, which is where he lived most of the time. Put them up there, get them out of Jerusalem. Why put this kind of offense before the people there? Let's keep the peace. And again, frustrated by these pesky Jewish people in Jerusalem. So Rome's kind of growing tired of hearing about all the disturbances in Jerusalem, and, 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 and it certainly didn't reflect well on Pontius Pilate. So again, this is, this is all part of the kind of the mood here. And then one final, uh, final uh, event that stands out anyway. There, the final offense came when Pilate struck Roman coin. He had every right to make his own coins and put whatever image on there. So he struck these coins and he put this pagan image on them. And, and again, as you might expect, this didn't go over well with the Jews. And once again, their outrage was reported to the, to the Roman, to the emperor, um, by some Jews, this Jewish delegation who went up there to see the emperor. So I give you all that background for reason. Because if you're like me, you, you read this account and you wonder, why does Pilate seem so weak? He's governor. He can do what he wants. He can, why, why, does he, why is he so pliable to the demands of this angry Jewish mob? Why, why does he just seem to kind of cave under pressure from these religious leaders? Why, why does he end up giving in to their demand for Jesus' death, even though he's already declared that Jesus is without fault? What, what, why would he do that? Well, the reason is, if all Jerusalem is crying out for the blood of Jesus, and Pilate doesn't give them the blood of Jesus, he's thinking, well, if this word, if word gets back to Rome, I'm done. So, so again, you, you need to understand that, that all this is happening in a, in a real-life context, just like anything that happens in our day. There are, there are these, these uh, factors and, and kind of the feeling and the mood and the climate of the day and, and all these little small things that contribute to relations. And this is what we have. There are real pressures. These are real people with real circumstances and real, real, real uh, uh, stuff going on. And, so, and yet this story isn't simply unfolding randomly. 
It's not being driven along by the feelings and whims of a guy like Pilate. No, God is behind this. That that the hand or the the glove of history. It, it, see, I'm messing it up. I worked at the wording of this, and I and the the hand of God fits the glove of history here. And so it's it's Him that's 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 guiding this. He's directing this drama of redemption. And so we need to keep this in mind as we look at this episode this week and and next week. And so. So the accepted picture of Pilate is, is, is by historians is he was stern, he was selfish, he was friendless, he was, he was stubborn, and he was cowardly. That's the kind of the image you get from historians. And, and that seems to fit with the biblical portrait of the little bit we do have about Pilate here. And so with that, all that said, that was more than a bite-sized overview. Um, but let's turn now to the text itself. And so verse 28, let's... Pick it up there. And let's walk through this. And then we'll prepare for the table together. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Or some of your translations may even say the praetorium. This was, this was the complex that was used by Pilate when he was in Jerusalem. Remember most of the time he stayed in Caesarea. But when there were these Jewish feasts and you had all these pilgrims coming into the city and and much more opportunity, much more likelihood for some kind of insurrection and, 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 and crowds. And so he would, he would move to Jerusalem temporarily for these big festivals. And it's Passover now. And so he would come and soldiers would come. And he would stay in this little kind of his Jerusalem headquarters. And the soldiers would stay with him in that compound. So they came. text says it was early morning. And they, those those Jewish leaders who brought Jesus from the Sanhedrin, they, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So this, this group of Jewish leaders who brings Pilate from Caiaphas doesn't personally go into Pilate's palace and his place there. Why? Because they don't want to miss out on the Passover and the opportunity to eat the feast and take in the meal on account of being unclean. And so the Passover feast, it lasted for seven days. And in order to participate in all aspects of the feast, these guys had to maintain complete ceremonial cleanliness from all forms of defilement. And entering into the residence of this pagan uh, governor, Pontius Pilate, it would bring them into contact with defilement and would not allow them to partake in Passover feast. And so to keep themselves pure, they simply... Turn Jesus over to the Praetorian Guard. They stay outside. They don't cross the threshold. Now, just stop and think about the hypocrisy of what's going on here. These guys are unbelievably careful to avoid any kind of defilement while at the same moment they're involved in the most wicked act in the history of the world. They're callously delivering the Son of God over to be, to be unjustly slaughtered, but they're making sure their hands don't become, come in contact with anything that might make them unclean so they can't eat dinner that night. This is just crazy. And this, is this, past, this whole passage, as we're going to see, is just dripping with irony. This passage and what will be next week 
And so, so they're focusing their full attention on the minutia of their religion while they're oblivious to the greatest act of injustice that's ever been committed throughout human history. I just say for us, it is possible to be very religious. And to be very, very careful about um, certain aspects of religion and to be very far from God. You can, this can be true of priests, this can be true of popes, this can be true of pastors, this can be true of you. All of us, that, that you can be very religious without having simple faith in Christ alone. And, and you can draw near to God with your lips, as prophets say, and yet your hearts can be far from the Lord. So these people, they go through all the motions, they maintain all the rituals, they pay careful attention to themselves and that they're totally clean and they follow the liturgy of worship just perfectly. And all the while, they're clamoring for the crucifixion of the Son of God. So they don't go unto Pilate. So Pilate has to go out to them. Concession is his thing. And he asks him, verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? So he's the one following the rules, pagan governor. You have to bring bring charges against him. You can't just drag him in front of me and say, kill him. What are the accusations? What what has this man done? And you can sense his disgust with these Jewish leaders. Already there's bad blood. He has has very little regard for, for these religious leaders begin with and now they're waking him up they're dragging this Jewish guy over here about a Jewish dispute over some Jewish theology he's like what why are you doing this what is what's what's if I I don't have anything to do with this guy so why are you bringing him to me and listen to how politely and respectfully these Jewish leaders respond to Pilate verse 30 they answered him this man were not doing evil we would not have delivered him over to you or why do you think we brought us brought him to you, you big dummy? Well, we have brought him to you if he was some kind of saint. We're bringing him to you because he's an evildoer, and your job is to get rid of evildoers. We wouldn't have we wouldn't have woken you up. We wouldn't be here this morning if he had if he had done nothing wrong. So, why do you think we brought him here? This is a very arrogant response on behalf of these men to Pilate, and you can tell by Pilate's response he does. He is none too pleased with it. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves. Judge him according to your own law. He has no interest in getting his hands dirty. He's ready to wash his hands. Later in other gospel accounts, there's a point where he, he symbolically, literally, but symbolically washes his hands of this matter. He wants to back off. He wants to back out. He says, you take him. Sends them on their way. Judge him according to your own law. Stop bothering me with the Jewish matter. But now they disclose why they brought him to Pilate. Why they're there that morning. Verse 31, the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We're not allowed to kill him. So you kill him. That's what's really going on here. Jews had... A very short leash when it came to, their, yeah, they had, the, we talked about this last week, yes, they had their judges, yes, they had their rules, and they had their courts, 
but they were really kind of powerless when it came to anything of importance, and they certainly couldn't put anybody to death. And so he said, it's your job. You've got you to kill them. And that's what they're really after. There's this bloodlust for Christ. And John adds this comment, verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. Because crucifixion was the primary means of execution in, in the Roman Empire. And Jesus was, was to die bearing the curse and dying by hanging on a tree. This John's saying this is, this is all, this is a little, little editorial comment just saying this is God's doing. He's involved. The glove of history fits the hand of God. So Pilate goes back into the praetorium again. He goes back in the compound. Jews stay outside because they don't want to get dirty. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, we say, where does that question come from? That hasn't even been mentioned. Well, it's clear from Pilate's question that Jesus' accusers have already kind of let the cat out of the bag. This is why we're bringing him. This is the charge we're, we're bringing against him. This is why it, it concerns you, uh, Pilate. Because the, 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 there's this trumped up political charge against Jesus by these Jews. He's, he's after the crown. That's what they're saying. They're charging him with sedition. He's calling himself a king, and you Romans, you can't put up with that sort of thing. You can't put up with this seditious, this seditious guy who's, who's trying to, to take your place, take the place of the emperor. So Pilate comes to Jesus and gives him the accusation. Are you, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? You see our Lord's reply. Verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Now who's the interrogator? Jesus turned the table here. And he's, he's, he's questioning, he's, he's challenging Pilate here. And, and the, the judge of heaven and earth is asking Pilate, is this, this your, is this from you? Or is this hearsay? Who told you that I was the king of the Jews? Is this, is this something you came up with on your own? Or, or is it hearsay? Jesus understands the rules of evidence. He understands the, the rule against hearsay convictions. So how, how does Pilate respond? Very cynically. Cynically. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? What do I care what the Jews are doing? It's none of my business who they're fighting over. I'm not a, I'm not a Jew. I don't care who the king of the Jews is. No. Your own nation, your own priests, they are the ones who delivered you over to me. So what is it you've done? That's what he's really getting at here. Tell me what you've done. Tell me why these people want your head. So Jesus answers. And it's this kind of cryptic answer. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. (laughs) Jesus is basically saying, what do you think? (laughs) If I stand here and tell you I have a kingdom, obviously I'm claiming to be king. 
So I'm trying to answer your question, Pilate. I do have a kingdom, but it's not, it's not like the kingdoms of this world. It's not like the Roman kingdoms. It's, it's, it's not like any kingdom you've ever encountered. It's, it, it's, it's not like that. It's not one that's built on violence and bloodshed and treachery and deceit and war and extortion. My kingdom is not a world-like kingdom. It's not of the world. He isn't saying that his kingdom, his dominion, his authority, it it doesn't extend over over this world. It's not like he just has some ethereal, kind of squishy, never-never land kind of kingdom out there. That's not what Jesus is saying here. No, he, he will, we will see later that Jesus has all authority over heaven and of earth. He is, he is king, he has dominion over everything. That's not his point. What he's saying is simply, his kingdom's not like Rome's kingdom. So you're asking me if I'm king, you're asking me about a kingdom. Yes, I'm a king, but you need to understand what I mean by king and kingdom. It's not what you're thinking. So Pilate hears all this business about this kingdom and this king. So you are a king. Jesus answered, verse 37, you say that I am a king. You've said it with your own lips. Yes, Pilate, I'm a king. And I'm on a royal mission. For this purpose, for this cause, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, what's that supposed to mean? He's not simply saying, I, I am truth, I am, I am objective truth, or I am not a relativist, or I'm opposed to falsehood. All those things are absolutely true. I mean, that's, that's true of Jesus. But what he's saying, and when he says, my purpose for coming into this world is to bear witness to the truth, he's saying, in effect, I came here to make the truth of God plain. And the truth of God is that the Lord reigns. And you, Pilate, and all the priests outside, you're all accountable on the final day of judgment to the King of Heaven, and I'm here to make that clear. My witness is to, or my mission is to bear witness to this truth. Now, I wish, I wish we could read Pilate's face when he responds to Jesus next. How does he answer? Not what does he say when he answers. We have that recorded for us. But how? What, what is, what is the tone of voice? What's his facial expression? What does he mean? Does he ask in a philosophical, inquisitive, sincere, speculative way, gee, what is truth? This truth you came to bear witness to. Is he asking to to be taught by Jesus? I don't think so. Because right after he says this, right after he asks, what is truth? Right after he says this, he leaves. <laughs> I think that makes it clear. His response is completely cynical. Huh. What's truth? I think that's more likely the response Jesus is giving. Give me a break. What's truth? He's quite 21st century, isn't he? We live in a world today where truth is just trampled on in the streets. People say, what's truth? Cynically. People answer, whatever you want it to be. It's true for you, true for me. Whatever turns you on. But truth, truth, truth is no longer, there's no, there's no belief in true truth, as Francis Schaeffer would say. Anything that's real, objective, certain, unchanging, 
No matter who you are, where you live, what you do, this is always true. We see that same response. Jesus isn't interested in kind of some existential, personalized, ever-changing, subjective truth. He came to make clear the truth of God. It's eternally, unchangeably true. Verse 38, and after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. You know why that was? Because there was no guilt to be found in him. In an indirect way, without really realizing what he's saying, Pilate is acknowledging the absolute sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Now, we can't even conceive of sinlessness. We, have known, we, we haven't known sinlessness. We have never, we've never seen it since the day we were born. But here, so it's something we have trouble even identifying with. But you, you put the spotlight on any one of us this morning, and it won't take long, and we're going to find stuff. And here I am under these LED lights up here, and so I mean, so so we we see, there's sin everywhere. We're this is this is part of life in this world, in this fallen world, our flesh and the devil and the world. They press in on us, and we sin. We could find sin anywhere, and God doesn't have to hunt for sin in our lives. It's, it's right there. But the Judge of all the earth could look through the most powerful, righteous microscope at Jesus and never, ever find guilt, find fault. Because the lamb, because the man who stood before Pilate was truth incarnate, he was a, he was a lamb without spot or blemish. Now, I realize so far all we've done basically is kind of give a running commentary through this passage. And I do not call that great preaching, and so I'll concede that. That's not... The, the standard that I want set in our church and and that I want to to abide by, but this this is an interesting passage, and I wanted I, I think there's some beauty and some richness to the details, so I want to just kind of walk through that. But now let's come back to Pilate's question, the, the question from this hardened, cynical man when he asked, "What's truth? What's truth?" Because even with the disciples, these friends of Jesus who have some awareness of what's going on, they've been told by Jesus that, oh yes, he's going to, he's going to suffer and he's going to die, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be handed, and he's going to be put in the hands of wicked men and they're going to crucify him and yet he's going to rise again. So they, they've at least heard what's happening and why this is happening. But, but even they, 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 they probably think everything here is, is going wrong in the courtyard. If they have any awareness of what's happening here, if if any disciple is within earshot or, 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 or has a visual on, on this scene, then they think, this is bad. This is all wrong. Jesus standing before these wicked men and on trial and being treated unjustly. But, but the truth, the true truth, is very different than their perception. The truth is very different from what Pilate thought was happening. The truth is very different from what these Jewish leaders thought was taking place. The truth is very different from what the disciples thought as they were running and cowering in fear. In reality, both the Jewish accusers and the Roman judge, they're actors in this redemptive drama that's been scripted by God. The glory of the gospel is that the hand of God is at work in in all of these events and the purpose of God is being fulfilled in everything that's taking place here. 
And so we have to have an appreciation for that bigger picture to understand what's going on here rightly. And that's what I want us to see. So we we need to understand where the truth really lies. And the first thing that we see is there is true justice at work here. There's true justice at work. I mean, everything about this scene, everything about this trial, it just reeks of injustice. It's all awful. the, The illegality of the Jewish hearings that we looked at last week, it was a sham Their determination to have Jesus killed at all costs. The the hypocrisy of their obsession with purity while turning again the Son of God over into the hands of wicked men. The the Pilate's pathetic handling of the case and all of its injustice. and It just all compounds. So any reader with any God-given sense of justice will look at this scene and say, this is travesty. It's awful. There's this all-out effort of those that are engulfed in spiritual darkness to to snuff out the one true light of the world. It's terrible. Whatever whatever it takes to do it, they're willing to do it. Whatever they have to say, whatever lies, whatever smear, whatever manipulation, whatever threats, they'll do it. But John alerts us to the truth behind these events. And he reminds readers of the prediction by Jesus concerning his death in verse 32 that Jesus would die in a way that marked him out as being a man under the very curse of God. Crucifixion. And so this is the, this is the irony of the whole scene here that it was God's intention to lead his son into this, to this point, into this exact method of execution. God wanted the world to know that Jesus was indeed under the judicial curse of of God. And that's what's happening. Justice was at work here. Where it looks like injustice is ruling the day, justice is winning. God's justice is, is being meted out right here in the scene. It's true justice. The true justice being carried out that day was God's eternal justice by means of the injustice of wicked men. So Paul would later write in In Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is judicial language. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so against this backdrop of of wicked and, and debauched injustice and dark injustice, we see the true justice of God being worked out. And this is what we come and remember at the table. Because justice has been satisfied in the injustice of wicked men. And the other thing, the other true truth that I think really shines out here is there, Jesus is, he has a true kingdom. He is a true king with a true kingdom. His kingdom is not like the world's kingdoms, but his kingdom and his reign is real. Pilate's not in charge of this scene. The emperor's not the one who's got, the, got the, the weight and is calling all the shots. The religious elite certainly aren't dictating these events. No. Even in the dark, this dark hour of suffering, throughout this trial, Jesus has this composure, this, this commanding presence. He's king. He's, he's king. He's reigning. He's ruling. And his kingdom will outlast all the others. He's king today, brothers and sisters. He rules. He reigns. He's in control. 
He, he's, a, he's a willing Savior in the sense that, that, that He's not going reluctantly, not against His will, but, but also He's willing in the sense that He is, he is moving this thing along. He's, he's accomplishing His purpose. It, it looks like total chaos that Thursday night with the Jewish trials and this Friday morning with all of these, these Roman trials. It looks like chaos and, and everything's out of control and yet the King is reigning. And I don't know what's going on in your life and I know some of you have got stuff going on and it, it seems chaotic and your whole world has just been turned upside down and everything seems chaotic and everything seems out of control and your circumstances just seem absolutely overwhelming. But listen, Jesus reigns. He is king today. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is he's in control. And so take heart, dear brothers and sisters. And as we come in a moment and we eat and drink, let, let that again, let that strengthen, that remembrance strengthen your heart. Our Lord, this, this suffering, this injustice, everything that he endured, it was all, it was all part of God's plan. And I'll remember that. I'm, my heart is strengthened. So as we prepare for the table, we come and we, we remember. Now, I, there are a lot of you who are old enough to remember or who were alive when JFK was assassinated. And if you were, every one of you can say exactly where you were and what you were doing when you got word of that assassination, right? And you, you, you remember, I, I, hear, I hear my parents talk about that, and, uh, or if you're even older than that, maybe Pearl Harbor, and you can go back that far. Um, I, for for me, it's it's nine eleven. Uh, I know some of the kids in here weren't, weren't alive then and don't have that remembrance. And there will be other events like that. But but you know the the memory of Kennedy has faded over the over the decades. I'm not saying we've forgotten him and we can't can't recall it to mind him when we need to. And and the number of flags that adorns houses, you know, has diminished significantly from those first days and weeks after nine eleven. Everybody had flags out, and but, but we'll never forget. But, you know, on a day-to-day basis, we, we don't actively remember. Listen, I've been thinking about this this week as preparing for the Lord's table. There is not a minute that passes by on the face of this planet where somewhere in the world there are people who are not actively remembering what we just talked about here. Think about that. As, as Christians, we're constantly remembering the gospel, remembering Jesus' suffering, his death, his resurrection. We have creeds, we have scripture memory, we have songs, everything helping us remember. And we're, we're, we're constantly rehearsing these events. And so even on this day, in this Lord's Day, all over the world, there are people that are gathering just like we are at the table to eat bread and to drink a cup and to, to remember our, our Lord suffering, his death, his resurrection. We, 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 we will not forget. And so because on the night on which he was betrayed, our Lord took bread and when he had blessed it, he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And this is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood shed for the remission of your sins. And whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And, and every time you eat the bread, every time you drink the cup, you, you remember and you proclaim and you show forth my death. That's what we do as we come. And so we've come to that moment this morning. We're going to gather at the table together, commune with him, 
and remember him. And he invites us to come and eat, to drink, and remember. Our Messiah, our King, our Lord, willingly laying down his life for us. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that we would, our hearts would be comforted and cheered by the thought that you, you are a king and you reign. And yet you did not dismiss us and, and because of our sin and because of our wickedness and rebellion, God, you didn't say, ah, forget them. But you loved your own. You loved us to the end. You came and you entered into this fallen world and you suffered and you died for our sins. And you rose triumphantly and you reign. Even today, you reign, God. So whatever we're walking through, we can remember, God, that you, you're king. Your reign is unending. Cheer our hearts with that thought as we come and remember together at the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.